I were to ask you the names of the first two children born to Adam and Eve, you could probably snap them right off to me, couldn't you? Cain and Abel. First two sons born to Adam and Eve. Firstborn was Cain. Abel was the secondborn. If you'll take your scriptures that I provided for you, we'll read of that birth and what occurred in their lives shortly after. We read from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Follow as I read. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. We don't know how much time elapsed between Adam and Eve's departure from the Garden in Eden and the birth of Cain and Abel. Scriptures don't tell us that time frame. We don't know how many years, months, it took for them to have their first children. But we have that birth described for us here. And Eve especially had great excitement and joy over the birth of Cain. You notice she said, God has enabled me to have a man-child. Now, why did that bring joy to Cain? Or, excuse me, to, to Eve. Remember the promise that God had made to Eve in the garden in Eden after they had sinned? He promised, I will provide the seed of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent and promised a male son who would come. Perhaps she thought this son would fulfill God's promise and crush the evil one who had tempted her so and brought sin into her life when she yielded to his temptation. She found great joy in the birth of her child, that firstborn son, hoping that he would bring relief and defeat over the serpent. She had another son, Abel. We don't, again, know how many years or months after the birth of Cain that uh, God gave them a second son, Abel. But we do read of what happened after the brothers brought their offerings to the Lord. We read in verse number 3 that Cain was a worker of the field, a farmer. And he brought of the goods of his crops as an offering to God. Now later on we would read in scriptures how God made provision for this kind of an offering. So Cain was not entirely out of line to bring the kind of offering he brought. 
But Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock. He was a shepherd, and he cared for sheep. And he brought a lamb, the firstborn lamb. And he brought that lamb and he sacrificed the lamb as his offering to the Lord. And it says, and the fat thereof. We read just a little bit farther that after the two brothers had given their offerings to the Lord, that God accepted one and rejected the other. Now that might cause a question in your mind. What? God rejected an offering that somebody brought to them? That brought to him? And he turned aside from it and, and refused it? How could he do that? How could he choose one over the other? And why would he accept Abel's offering and reject Cain's offering? These scriptures don't tell us why God accepted Abel's and rejected Cain's. We do read, however, I don't have it recorded here for you to read this morning, but if you would read a little bit farther on in chapter 4 of Genesis, you would read that God came to Cain. He saw how saddened he became after God had rejected his offering, and he came to Cain and he said, What's the matter, Cain? Why don't you consider what has occurred and let's straighten matters out and you will be accepted. God gave Cain another chance. And we know from our Bible stories that we learned as children that Cain didn't accept God's second offer and he slew his brother Abel out of anger and jealousy. Well, why did God accept Abel's offering and reject Cain's. We don't have it recorded here, but we do have it recorded in the New Testament. I will read that verse for you, because it describes for us why God accepted Abel's offering, and it gives to us a clue as to what God looks for from you and from me. Because we might fall to the same temptation that Cain did, and bring the best of what we have to offer. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 4, it says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Why did God accept Abel's offering? Because of his faith. He trusted God. He didn't come just on the means of his sacrifice alone. He came trusting that God would accept his sacrifice. He came trusting God's promise that he had made to his mom and dad back in the Garden of Eden. That God would provide a champion. And in looking forward to the time when God would reveal that champion who would crush the serpent. Abel trusted God. He believed him and his word. Cain did not. 
Cain came to God merely on the basis of his own good works. And God rejected them. Now as we examine this brief account as recorded in Genesis chapter 4. We have to think back as to why did God provide this written record in the first place? And for whom did he provide it? Well, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses wrote those. However, I have a $15 million question for you. When did he write them? Before he died. Before he died is a good answer, Sue. He wrote them before he died. The best information that biblical scholars can undercover, can uncover regarding the time frame, he wrote them during the time of the wilderness. When the children of Israel traveled from Egypt to the promised land. And during those 40 years, he wrote the record that we have. Why did God move Moses to write, especially this record about Adam and Eve? Well, you'll recall that the land to which God was taking the children of Israel, the land of Canaan, was filled with idol worshippers, godless men and women, who had rejected God and had no time for God at all and rejected Him repeatedly and their lives filled with iniquity. God wanted to prepare His people for entrance into that land so that when they came into that land they would begin to see the difference between those peoples and them, God's people. God had an entirely different way for them to worship Him than the way that the people in Canaan worshipped. And He wanted them to know from the very beginning of time that God accepted only blood. And He accepted it by faith only. And so He began with the very beginning of time and began to teach and prepare his people for entrance into the promised land to know that the sacrifices and the teaching that God had given to them on Mount Sinai in the wilderness, he wanted them to follow it and to reject that which they saw as they entered into the land of Canaan. It also reveals to us the character of God God is a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He makes provision for sacrifice for sin and for the payment of sin. But one aspect of God's nature we don't like very much, the wrath of God. In fact, in our world today, most of the world completely rejects that aspect of God That is a centuries-old feature about God that has no bearing on our lives today whatsoever. God is no longer a God of wrath. He's a God of love. He's a God of kindness. He's a God of goodness. And He will accept anybody and everybody that comes along, and He's just a good guy. 
No, my friends, we need to understand. Yes, God is a God of love. And he has made provision for people like you and me and like for Abel and Cain and for Adam and Eve and he taught them his ways. But for those who reject his ways, there is condemnation. There is judgment. There is only righteousness found when we believe and trust God for the way in which he taught us to come to him. What we find very early in the scriptures, God beginning to teach his people, helping them understand how to overcome the separation that had occurred between God and man because of sin in the garden. By blood, by faith, in God alone. As we contemplate this story about Cain and Abel and their sacrifices, we find another aspect to this story that I want us to consider. It gives to us a picture of Jesus. The sacrifice that Abel brought to God was a lamb. Throughout the Old Testament, God began to teach His people that they were to come to Him through the sacrifice of a lamb and to shed the blood of that lamb and to bring the fat of that lamb as part of the sacrifice. And He would accept that sacrifice. And throughout the Old Testament, God taught them in various ways and means what he revealed to Abel and to Cain back in those earliest times. We read at the very beginning of the Gospels that John the Baptist, the one whom God sent ahead of Jesus, sent ahead of him to prepare people one comes after me he said and in fact this one is right among you he stands among you this one and he's called the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and later on in John's ministry he pointed him out and said there he is that's the one And the scriptures point out to us that Jesus became the Lamb pictured in the Old Testament. Slain, blood spilt, sacrificed. Jesus came as the fulfillment of those pictures. Those early revelations those early provisions that God made on behalf of His people, how they could come and be reconciled to God by faith in their sacrifice of a lamb. And it pointed to the day when the Lamb of God would come who would take away the sin of the world. That Lamb was Christ. That Lamb was Jesus. And He came. Now I want us to look at how scriptures describe 
the relationship between the sacrifice of Abel and the sacrifice of Christ. And we find it recorded in many places, but no place better than Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 25. Well, I'll read those for you. You follow along in your scriptures as I read them. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If any beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. What does that describe? That describes the time when God came down on Mount Sinai in the wilderness in Exodus chapters 20 through the end of the book. And it records that time when God came down and he spoke with Moses face to face. And he gave him the law and the commandments and the sacrifices that they should follow that would reconcile them to God. So fearsome was that occasion that fire shone on the mountain and the earth shook like with a great earthquake. And the people feared for their very lives as we just read. And God is saying through the writer of Hebrews, But you haven't come to a mountain like that. They came to a mountain like that. But you have not come to a mountain like that. And then he begins to describe to them what they can come to. Something different than that mountain that shook with such ferocity back in the time of Moses. And we find starting in verse number 22, the description of Jesus and what he can provide. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood. Who did the writer of Hebrews have in mind as he talked about the sprinkled blood? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus who endured the cross and what occurred on the cross that brought about the sprinkled blood, the shed blood, the crucifixion, the thorn of crown, the crown of thorns on his head, the beatings that he took, the nailing to the cross, and finally the spear of the soldier into his side that issued forth water and blood. Oh, but it goes a little farther than that. Because that blood that Jesus shed on the cross that became a sacrifice to God and it was as if that blood that he shed on the cross was sprinkled on the altar in heaven 
you realize there's an altar up there? There is an altar up there. The design that Moses used to build the tabernacle in the wilderness copied what he saw on the mountain as God revealed it to him. And the sprinkled blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross was sprinkled on that altar before the Father in heavenly places. And God accepted it. God accepted that offering of Christ. And that offering that Christ made on the cross, he made on behalf of people just like you and just like me. Now, we read here that it says the sprinkling of that blood was better than the blood that Abel offered. Abel offered blood. He offered a sacrifice, a lamb. And the shed blood of that lamb he offered to God in an offering. But it says here that the sprinkled blood of Jesus surpassed that offering How did it surpass that offering? Well, first let's examine Abel's offering before we examine the offering of Christ so we see the distinction between the two. How many people did Abel's offering cover? One person. How much of Abel's life did that offering cover? One short span of time. Because had Abel lived, he would have had to offer that sacrifice again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Over and over and over, he would have had to repeat that offering. Because it did not have the ability to completely cover the sin of mankind. It was temporary, short term, an animal on behalf of a man. Ah, but when we come to the sprinkled blood of Jesus, oh, we see significant differences. How many people did the blood of Jesus cover? Many. Multitudes. We read here, it talks about the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. The multitudes of people who over the centuries have trusted Christ and have become His children. The sprinkled blood covered them. There's a multitude there. Millions upon millions of people. How many sacrifices did Christ make? One for all, it says. And He sat down. His sacrifice done and complete. No need for repetition. No need to do it again and again and again. And those for whom Christ died, that sacrifice covered the totality of their sin. Not just one. Not just for a short span of time. But for all eternity. From the beginning of their lives to the end of their lives and throughout the endless ages of eternity. Oh, yes. The sprinkled blood of Jesus surpassed the blood of the sacrifice of Abel. For the blood of Christ obtained atonement. 
it reconciled sinners to God. It redeemed them. It brought forgiveness and pardon to them. Oh, it surpassed the sacrifice of Abel in countless ways. That only gives a brief description of the ways in which the sprinkled blood of Christ spoke and speaks a better word than the blood that Abel shed in his sacrifice. What can we conclude from these events and from uh, viewing this narrative of Abel and his sacrifice and the record as we read recorded about the sacrifice of Christ from Hebrews it can reveal to us the condition of man estranged from God separated because of our sin helpless Unable to reconcile ourselves back to God. A gulf exists between God and man. We have no means to bridge that gulf. It also reminds us of the character of God. God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. He has made provision for those beyond the gulf helpless in their sin, unable to satisfy God in any means. God is gracious and he has made provision for sinners like you and like me. A way by which we can find reconciliation back to God. How we can find redemption and justification and righteousness like Abel did. The scriptures as we read describe Abel as righteous because of his faith in the sacrifice that he brought to God and he trusted God that God would accept his sacrifice because our sin separates us from God and prevents us from reconciling with God Therefore, we must regard and accept the provision that God has made on our behalf in Jesus Christ and trust His sprinkled blood on behalf of people like you and like me to bring to us redemption and reconciliation back to God I have a serious question for you this morning do you trust God oh we trust in our banks don't we to a certain measure they tell us they will protect our funds up to $250,000 if we have $250,000 in our bank accounts there we trust that the bank will somehow provide money to us if they go into difficulty. And we trust the bank. We trust our doctors. We go to them for help in times of illness and injury. And we trust them. We trust that they can understand our ailment. 
We trust that they can provide a, a means of treatment that will help us recover from our illness. And we go to them because we trust them, don't we? We might even trust an advisor, a business consultant. We go to them and ask for advice and counsel. and They tell us how we should spend our money or how we should save or invest our funds. And we trust them. We might even trust family. But do you trust God? Do you trust Him? Do you believe it when He says that He loves people like you? Do you believe Him when He says, I have given you my Son, my only Son, for you, and that if you will believe Him and trust Him, I will give to you eternal life? Do you believe Him? Do you trust His Word that what He says is true? Oh, my friends, all too often we trust the bank and our doctor and family and friends. We even trust ourselves more than we trust God. And yet God is the only one who can provide a means by which we can be reconciled back to Him. He's the only one. Our family can't help us. Our friends can't help us. The banker can't help us. The doctor can't help us. Only God can help us. And He has made provision for people just like you and just like me. And Jesus said that the Father so loved the world that He gave His Son, meaning Him, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We find in our scriptures a reminder of the connection between Abel and Christ and the sprinkling of the blood and the sacrifice and what it obtained on behalf of people. How can the Spirit of God use these truths to change our lives today? He can correct our thoughts. We may have a mistaken notion about how one finds reconciliation back to God. We may think, for example, that we can have something to do with it. Maybe if I'm just good enough. Maybe if I just attend church every Sunday. Maybe if I'm just good to other people. Maybe if even I pray once in a while that God will look down on me and He'll pat me on the head and I'll have more good things than bad things and He'll accept me. Oh no, my friends. That has never been the case from the beginning of time. And we see it with Cain and Abel. Vividly portrayed to us. God accepted one and not the other. So the Spirit of God can correct our thinking to understand and know the truth. The Spirit of God can comfort us. Some of you have trusted Christ. You've made that known. 
you know the comfort that that brings. And as we've talked about the blood of Jesus and how it obtained redemption and salvation for all who believe, you have found comfort in that. Because you have and do trust God. And you do trust Christ. So it brings comfort. It also brings comfort to those who up until now have not believed because it opens our eyes to see there's hope. There's hope. It's not a hopeless circumstance in which we live. We have hope in Christ. God has made provision. There's hope. And if I but cast my trust and faith upon Him, I will obtain that which He promised. Eternal life. So it brings comfort to us who don't believe as well as those who believe. The Spirit of God can then begin to convict us and point out to us our need of trusting not only God the Father but in His Son, Jesus. And what He has accomplished for people And you can begin to say in your heart and your mind, Do I trust Him? Do I believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Have I ever believed Him? Has there ever come a time in my life when I have said, Yes, I believe that. I trust what Jesus did as if He did it for me. And the Spirit of God, as He works in our hearts and in our minds and opens our eyes to see our need of a Savior and His provision in Jesus of that Savior, the Spirit of God can actually convert us, change us, give to us new life, and enable us to believe and to trust in Christ. God's provision for sinners like you and like me. Now notice the very last verse of that section from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 25. I didn't read that last verse when I read the section, but I want to read it now. It says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. Which path will you follow? Will you follow the path of Cain who rejected God's warning? God warned him. God came to him and said, You know, Cain, you could change. And he refused. And God judged him. Or you can follow the path of Abel and countless others throughout the centuries of time who have come to God in faith upon the blood. Only not the blood of a sacrifice like Abel's, but the better blood sacrifice, the blood sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of sinners and so I would urge you today 
if you have yet to call upon the Savior, Jesus, that you call on him today. The Bible tells us, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you can know today the beginning of God's work in your heart and life, changing you, bringing to you peace and joy that surpasses any kind of human or earthly experience. It's beyond anything you can imagine. I pray that the Spirit of God will teach you comfort you draw you give to you that new life that comes from God and enable you to trust in faith upon Jesus the Savior of sinners let's close with a word of prayer shall we